Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents CAF Chats. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seagraves, United States Marine Corps, and with me is Major Kathy Hartsfield. And we have a special guest with us today. Jamie Brown. I'm a student at Chapman Fowler School of Law, and I'm a rising 2L interning at uh, the JAG School this summer. It's been great having you. So today we're going to be talking about two cases that deal with CAF's ability to hear appeals on rulings regarding writs of mandamus. The first case we're going to discuss is Fink v. YV in the United States. It was decided on April 20th, 2023. So what's the big issue in this case, Jamie? So the issue that is before CAF is whether they are able to review an appeal that was brought up by the accused uh, regarding a written mandamus decision um, at the lower court with the Court of Appeals. And Kathy, since you're the expert here, uh, can you tell the listeners what a written mandamus is? Sure, sir. So a writ of mandamus is a pretty drastic tool that's available to a party uh, when the lower court gets a ruling wrong. And so what it essentially does, once a petitioner files a writ of mandamus, it stays the proceedings of the the court uh, while the Court of Criminal Appeals then considers the petition. But in order to prevail on a petition for a writ of mandamus, the petitioner has to then show very specific things. Uh, one, that there's no adequate other adequate means to attain relief. And then two, the right to issuance of the writ is clear and indisputable. And three, the issuance of the writ is appropriate under the circumstances. Thank you. So, Jamie, can you tell us some of the facts about the Fink case? So here, the defense for the accused attempted to bring in a witness testimony from one of their shipmates who would speak about having sex with the victim a few months prior to the alleged assault. And the trial judge here actually determined that the evidence was constitutionally required for impeachment by contradiction about things that the victim had previously stated. During a recess, However, the victim then chose to file a stay of proceeding, and the Court of Criminal Appeals granted that stay so that they can consider her petition. From there, the the victim did file a writ of mandamus with the Court of Criminal Appeals, uh, Article 6B, writ of mandamus, to also exclude the 412 evidence um, that they were attempting to bring in. So basically... Defense tries to bring in some MRE 412 evidence, colloquially called the rape shield. So they're bringing, trying to bring in other sexual behavior of a victim of a sexual offense. Uh, trial judge grants that, says they can bring it in. The, the victim asks for a stay of proceedings, files this writ with the Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals. So what happened there? 
So from there, the Court of Criminal Appeals determined that this testimony that defense was attempting to bring in was collateral evidence and should not be admitted. Um, they determined that the accused was not constitutionally entitled to present that extrinsic evidence for the sole purpose of contradicting statements uh, made by the victim that the accused actually elicited from the victim at direct. As you said, uh, the Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals granted that victim's writ of mandamus. Correct. All right, so how do we get to CAF? So from there, the accused did not like that that was the decision made and appealed it to CAF. And from there, CAF needed to determine if it had the jurisdiction to review this uh, appeal from the accused. Because previously, they had not had this jurisdiction, correct? Correct. Uh, and there was previous um, case law uh, determining that this specific type of situation, but the accused was uh, suggesting that they should reconsider that and, and possibly even overturn previous case law on this because of updates that had been made to statute that should allow the, the CAF to review his case. Now, Kathy, what were those changes to the statute? Yeah, so originally Article 67, which is the statutory provision that sets forth CAF's jurisdiction, uh, CAF had held that the court had jurisdiction to review an accused petition under Article 67A3, and CAF had statutory authority pursuant to Article 67C1B. So what does that mean? Essentially, the Article 67C was amended in 2017 to say CAF had jurisdiction um, to address a decision judgment or order by a military judge as affirmed or set aside as incorrect in law by the CCA. But there's no longer that limited language of findings or sentence anymore since the amendment. And so now CAF's jurisdiction is expanded to include a review of a decision of a CCA decision on an Article 6B writ. So it used to be just case has to be all the way completely done and over. Uh, but now that that language was removed. And so they can actually hear this. That's correct. Okay, so CAF says, statute's changed, we can hear this, what'd they do after that? So they, they did determine that they are able to hear a writ of mandamus. However, uh, the statute also explains that there must be good cause for hearing and reviewing the case from an accused and determined, however, that in this situation, they did not see that the accused had good cause. So they dismissed it without prejudice so that he would be able to appeal later if he needed to, but they would not review it at this time. So basically they said, okay, we still have the authority to hear it if he is actually convicted, and so we can hear it again at that time. Correct. Okay. So Kathy, for the practitioners, did they tell us what good cause entailed? No. So that's the, that's the issue that then begs the question for the field, what then constitutes good cause? So after Article 67C1B was amended, there hasn't been any military case law that discusses what would rise to good cause uh, in which the impellent wasn't already convicted or sentenced. So what's good cause is within the discretion of the court, but the court doesn't allude to what could possibly meet the standard. Additionally, the court's reasoning here that the appellant can later appeal the issue after a finding of guilt 
seems to then create the situation in which an accused would never be able to show good cause for CAF to consider an interlocutory appeal. So fair to say, Fink gave us, okay, uh, the accused can appeal a uh, ruling on a writ by a court of criminal appeals. However, uh, defense counsel out there, uh, you be better be ready to argue what good cause you have to be heard. That's right. So even though an accused can file a writ with CAF, it still has to be on an issue that falls within those three buckets under Article 67C1. If it's not within those three buckets, then CAF still doesn't have jurisdiction. Anything else we need to talk about with this case? No, I think that's it, sir. Very well. Then we're going to move on to the second case. Uh, we're going to discuss MW versus United States and Staff Sergeant Marshall Robinson, United States Air Force, real party and in interest. It was decided on 13 July 2023. Jamie, what's this case all about? So we see a similar issue in this case as well, where a victim has filed a writ of mandamus to the Court of Criminal Appeals. However, in this situation, the Court of Criminal Appeals denied uh, the writ of mandamus, and now it's the victim who is attempting to appeal this to CAF. And so CAF needs to determine if it has jurisdiction to hear this this appeal from the victim. So in Fink, we had the question of whether an accused can appeal a writ up to CAF, and now we have whether the victim can. Correct. All right, Kathy, uh, can you give us some of the facts of this case? Yeah, this, this has a interesting set of facts here. So the accused in this case was charged with sexual assault and abusive sexual contact. Petitioner MW is a victim in the case. And then during voir dire, uh, MW's SVC and TDS counsel were present in the gallery and were taking notes during the group and individual voir dire. After the individual voir dire, the judge recessed the court and allowed both parties to prepare their member challenges. But during the recess, the two trial counsel, or the TCs, went into the gallery to discuss their notes and the possible challenges with their expert consultant, but also with MW's SVC, or Special Victims Counsel, and Trial Defense Services, or TDS Counsel. So then both MW's SVC and TDS Counsel were sharing their opinion to potential government challenges with the TC. The accused defense counsel observed this huddle going on between the four captains and then later found out through one of the TCs that they were actually sharing their voir dire notes and discussing possible challenges. It's important to note here for later uh, the court's holding that the accused family was also in the gallery observing this discussion then between the four captains. At the recess, the defense counsel raised the issue to the military judge and made an oral motion arguing that the discussion between the government and then MW's counsel was improper and then asked the court to either excuse the court and detail new members or remove the prosecution team, including their consultant, the SVC, and MW's defense counsel, or declare a mistrial. So the military judge then recessed the court for lunch. The four captains got together in the gallery again, and discussed how the government should response, respond to the defense's motion. And at that point, the SVC told the TC, hey, under Article 6B, A5, an SVC has a right to confer with the trial counsel about court-martial proceedings. Well, guess what? The defense heard the SVC telling the TC, I think that's how you should respond to this issue. 
And then that then led to the second issue before the court. When the court reconvened, the defense counsel brought up that second group discussion. The judge essentially issued a gag order then between the four captains and held a Article 39 evidentiary hearing. The judge, though, barred the government from the courtroom during that fact-finding portion of the hearing, instead only allowing one TC to be Uh, in the courtroom to testify and then exit the courtroom after. So no representative from the government able to represent the government, like asking questions. That's right. Or anything like that. There's empty table over there. That's right. And that was the big problem later on. So the judge found that the SVC did indeed tell the TC about their client's Article 6B rights to confer with the prosecution during the court martial and that the SVC then said that he shared this point with the TC because he thought the court wouldn't allow him to be heard on the matter. So the military judge also found that the TC changed her mind about opposing one of the defense counsel's uh, challenges and agreed to adding that particular member on the list of agreed excusals. During the 39A oral argument, though, the defense then argued that the TC's panel discussion with uh, the SVC could be unlawful command influence, or UCI, And the judge ultimately ruled that the panel selection discussion between the TC and SVC was impermissible because a victim was trying to influence the panel composition through the counsel. Additionally, the judge ruled that it was unreasonable for the victim's counsel to advise the TC how to respond to that objection. The discussion was permissible under 6B. The judge found that both discussions were apparent adjudicative UCI And then to cure the appearance of unfairness, the government was prohibited from exercising any challenges to include preemptive, preemptory challenges. So challenges for preemptory challenges, which is anyone they want, and challenges for cause. That's right. So it's a pretty harsh remedy for the government. So the government and the SVC at that point filed a writ to the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals seeking to reverse the judge's ruling. The government argued that the judge improperly excluded the trial counsel from the hearing when uh, it closed that hearing. And then the SVC argued that the judge's ruling limited the victim's statutory right to confer with the government under Article 6B, Alpha 5. Ultimately, the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals agreed with the government, vacated the judge's order, and ordered a new hearing, which would then include the government. However, the Court of Criminal Appeals denied the SVC's writ reasoning that the issue was moot at this point because they were ordering a new hearing and vacating the military judge's ruling. So just a quick recap. So you had trial counsel in there during voir dire, and you had the victim represented by both victim's counsel and TDS. At the end of asking questions, they got together. Defense counsel said, hey, that's that's unlawful influence. You can't do that. Kind of some collusion type of thing going on there. Ultimately, judge kicks out the trial counsel during an evidentiary hearing no representative from the government, rules against them saying no challenges at all. And we get that writ up to the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, and they rule on the fact that, okay, uh, not having the trial counsel or any representative of the government during that hearing, that's a no-go, vacates it, sends it back just for that purpose. But then the victim wants to actually appeal because they want a ruling on whether that was unlawful influence. Is that right? That's right. They want the Air Force Criminal Court of Appeals to rule that the SVC had a right to confer with the government under Article 6B, Alpha 5. And 
a broad conferring with the government uh, to also discuss challenges on the court-martial panel. And so they appealed the ruling by the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, and that gets us to CAF. That's right, sir. All right, so Jamie, what, is it, what does CAF do when they look at this case? So CAF needs to determine whether it has jurisdiction to take this case from the victim and gives the opportunity to brief on basically determining what source of authority might exist that could give CAF the ability to hear the case, review it. Sure. So what was the first rule they looked at? So they looked at Article 67, and then after that was Article six and and then another previous case where they had determined on this issue as well all right well let's let's look at article 67 what they say about that so in article 67 calf explains that this is explicitly giving the court authority to review three kinds of cases and as calf explains what each of these three types of cases are they determine that uh, a victim appealing does not fit within this authority that they have or fit within one of these types of cases. CAF only has statutory authority then under Article 67A for capital cases, all cases in which the relevant TJAG seeks a review of a denial of a writ of mandamus by a CCA, and then all cases reviewed by a CCA upon petition of the accused and in, on good cause shown, right? So the, the Fink uh, case. But as you said, Jamie, the victim doesn't fall into any of these categories. And so uh, the CAF ruled that they didn't have jurisdiction. Well, it was also pretty important that they noted that they could have jurisdiction for this case under the second way to get jurisdiction if the TJAG had sought that review. That's right, sir. So that would have put them into uh, the LRMV Kastenberg world if they had gotten uh, TJAG to seek a review. All right. So Article 67, not going to answer the mail here. So next they looked at Article 6B, rights of the victim of an offense under this chapter. All right. So Jamie, which specific provision of Article 6B did they look at? They're specifically looking at a addition that came in more recently, and it is Article 6B E 3 uh, 3C, which makes reference to giving instruction to the CAF to give priority to writ of mandamus cases within the rules of CAF. So generally the, their argument is, well, Congress said, okay, CAF, uh, you, you have to take these, these appeals and give it priority. So obviously, well, they're trying to say that it implies that that means you should have jurisdiction. But what did CAF say? CAF said that this instruction actually does not give the court jurisdiction. This only instructs CAF to give priority in, in looking at the case when it's brought to them. So as long as they have jurisdiction over a case, it gets priority, but this itself does not confer jurisdiction. Correct. Anything else on that point, Kathy? Yeah, so Article 6B E3C only talks about the procedural requirement how the CAF is supposed to then act uh, when reviewing a CCA's decision. It doesn't create then a new area of jurisdiction that bypasses Article 67A. 
very good. So I guess next they looked at the All Writs Act. Kathy, you talk about that? Yeah, so under the All Writs Act, um, the CCA has authority to issue extraordinary writs necessary or appropriate in aid of its jurisdiction. So here, MW was arguing that even if Article 6BE didn't grant jurisdiction to have the court review her writ, the All Writs Act gave CAF jurisdiction. But ultimately, CAF said, hey, this is not an independent grant of jurisdiction to CAF. You can't bootstrap Article 6BE with the All Writs Act to then artificially expand CAF's statutory jurisdiction. And they also reviewed EV versus United States. Tell us about that, Kathy. Sure. The final issue then is whether EV versus United States, which was a 2016 case before CAF, is now superseded. And that's because in EV, CAF held there that they didn't have jurisdiction to review a victim's Article 6B writ because Article 6B didn't even mention CAF. Well, as we discussed now, Article 6B was amended in 2017 to include the procedural priority CAF has to give to writs based on a CCA's decision. But ultimately, that procedural priority doesn't change the fact that Article 6B E3C uh, doesn't change or expand the CAF's jurisdiction. So EV is still good and it's not superseded. And also kind of dealing with uh, the argument, well, okay, how can they mention CAF now if they don't have jurisdiction? And then, you know, the court looks at, well, again, we, we noted that we do have jurisdiction under Article 67A2 if TJAG had sought review. That's right. So, Kathy, I was going to have to ask you, you know, how is this going to affect the field? What can practitioners take away from this? Yeah, I got a couple of takeaways, sir. So, first, uh, the case makes it clear to SVCs out there that they cannot file an Article 6B writ to CAF if they first don't satisfy the requirements of Article 67A. So essentially, Article 6BE3 doesn't allow the SVC to backdoor writ to CAF. Now, as you said, sir, if they went through the right process and if TJAG ordered CAF to review the case, then this would have been a different story. But, um, you know, as in this case, unless the CV SVC represents a victim in a capital case, the relevant TJAG has to seek a review of the case for CAF to have jurisdiction to review that victim's writ. Honestly, I, I think the likelihood of that happening is probably going to be rare and limited to those cases that will have a major impact on substantive victims' rights under Article 6B. Uh, my second takeaway for the practitioners out there is the Air Force Criminal Court of Appeals denied the SVC's writ, which sought to have the court rule that there was a comprehensive right to confer with the government during all court-martial proceedings. But AFCA held that there are reasonable limitations within the victim's right to confer with the government, and they cited to Kastenberg, in which the CAF said a victim has a right to a reasonable opportunity to be heard and is subject to reasonable limitations, and that the judge retains discretion under RCM 801. So I would say for the practitioners out there, know that Article 6B doesn't give the victim unfettered right to confer with the government. In fact, for our Army practitioners, AR 27-10 explicitly states that the victim has a reasonable right to confer with the government counsel at a 39A concerning the continuation of pretrial confinement, a sentencing hearing, and a clemency and parole board hearing. The scope of what the victim can confer with the government on then is clearly very limited, right? It doesn't include... Uh, not broad enough to include discussions about the composition composition of the court. 
So uh, my final takeaway then is for SVCs out there to be cautious that they don't step outside of their lane and inadvertently become a member of the government team. SVCs are not an arm of the government, and if they're even perceived to be, that could cause a whole slew of consequences. For example, could the victim be subject to discovery obligations, or could there be an argument for undue pressure on prosecutorial discretion, right? So we're just that would just uh, open the door for a whole lot of other issues. So SVCs just need to make, make sure that they are not becoming an arm of the government. So even if uh, our victims counsel out there are in a different service and not subject to the, the AR, it's, it's still a good idea to be cautious. That's it, right, sir. Outstanding. Well, now I'd like to move to uh, a little bit of a special topic here, asking some questions of our intern, if I may. So, uh, Jamie, it's been great having you, as I said, a great member of the team. Uh, what made you interested in the JAG Corps? Sure. So I actually have a background with uh, working with the American Red Cross, um, kind of focused on humanitarian work. And in my experiences, I uh, developed a great interest in international humanitarian law uh, and then, of course, in work around disasters. And as a representative uh, of the JAG Corps came to my university campus, I just was curious if there uh might be some connection with what I might be interested in with uh, with the JAG Corps uh, in talking to her. And then as I've been in this internship, I realized more and more that there were a lot of connections with some areas that I was interested in. I didn't, I didn't completely realize until I dove in. So what do you think someone considering applying to the JAG Corps internship should know? Uh, from my little experience, I definitely would share that I have gained a lot of insight with actually just taking advantage of the opportunity to take the internship. The environment here is fantastic. I know from speaking to a large amount of wonderful individuals that they uh, they enjoy the supportive environment that they find in the JAG Corps and the collaborative environment. And that is a great interest to me and might be interested in others who are looking into it. Also, there's there's actually a lot of excitement that comes from the opportunity to work in different areas of the law. That was something that sounded kind of overwhelming to me at first, but I also have begun to see how so many individuals love their profession with the JAG and their opportunity to work in different parts of, of the law. Like I said, it's been awesome having you here. Anything else that you'd like to share? Just that I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to be here and to learn so much from so many wonderful people here. Thank you again, Jamie, and thank you, Kathy, for joining us here. And uh, thank you very much, all of our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Criminal Law Department Presents CAF Chats. We appreciate you sharing this time with us. As Major Josh Mickelson would say, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. 
thanks counsel for both sides and the court will stand in recess until further order of the court. Thank you.